Morning, church. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1. And as you're turning, we're going to be in verses 18 through 20. You go ahead and frame up the Holy Spirit's thought this morning. In this passage in Romans, Paul is acting as a prosecuting attorney. This is the opening statement in the great case of holy God against sinful, fallen men and women. And even as he opens in this first verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he lets the cat out of the bag. He, he leaves the defendant, you and I, and all men born under the headship of Adam since the fall, he leaves the, 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 the defendant indefensible and without excuse. It's such an open and shut case, really. Before we even look at chapters 2, 3, Romans chapter 8, 11, or 12, it's what a lawyer would consider a slam dunk case. Here it is. For the rebel then, 2,000 years ago, and for, for the rebel this morning, a righteous standing and thus peace before a holy God only comes through the shed blood of our great Savior and King, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord. And this morning, out of reverence and honor for the living Word of God, I'd ask that you stand as I read these three verses in front of us this morning. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, writes to the churches in Rome. And he says these words. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Let's pray. Dear most gracious, merciful God, Lord, the greatest evidence is that you sent your son for a pitiful group of orphans like us. Lord, today, as, a, as the collective body gathers to bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, we, we pray and make requests that's been given through the access that he has granted. Lord, our requests are simple. May they be simple humble and bold at the same time. Lord, save that wanderer who providentially finds him or herself in, within this room under the sound of the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would cause them to be born again through the preaching of your gospel. And Lord, our second request is sanctify. Grow us. Lord, our Savior said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Lord, may I have a, a pure voice this morning, and Lord, may you give and enable this audience to have pure ears, Lord, that they would hear from you. Lord, we'll give you all the glory and honor, and Lord, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
lost here this morning. Let me ask you a question. If you're lost here, what do you need to be saved from? And child of God, those who, have, who profess to have a relationship with the, this great creator of the universe, what brings you most worship throughout your days consistently that you have been delivered from? You see, those two questions beg the same answer. It's not, per se, our sin directly. It's not drunkenness. It's not pride. It's not immorality. It's not pharisaicalism, self-righteousness. But here's the answer to those two questions. The wrath of God. The wrath of God. And here in Romans chapter 1, Paul starts not with the grace of God, not with the, the love of God, not with the mercy of God, but what? With the wrath and the righteous justice of God. He starts first with man's dilemma. Number one, here's what I want you to see this morning. The, the title of my sermon is The Wrath of God. We're going to make it from 18 all the way to the end of verse 20, Lord willing. But I want to start first, point number one, the strategy regarding the wrath of God. Look to the text. He says, for, for. Now, Bible students, what is the for there for? Spurgeon has often been quoted, and he said, when you see a, a therefore or a for, you must ask, what is the therefore therefore? Brothers and sisters, as a Bible student, whether you're a preacher or a teacher, it doesn't matter. You should be conditioned in the Holy Spirit. When you see this conjunction, this connector, this link, you must stop, you must pause, and you must, in order to move forward properly in the text and your understanding, you must do what? You must take a glance back at what the author, the biblical author, has already said. In this case, you don't have to go too far back. It is the thesis statement of this book of Romans. Look to the text. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But how is it the power of God to save? Verse 17. For in it, listen, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. At this point, brothers and sisters, the righteousness of God was a developed doctrine in itself for the Apostle Paul. Not so much when you read through books like Galatians. You start to see glimpses of it in Galatians. But 20 years removed from when Paul writes one of his first books, Galatians, the righteousness of God could not be put in a box. It was a deep, rich, theologically full topic. The righteousness of God. And this four basically points us back to the righteousness of God. We know that when a, a sinner is saved... And, and they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What is seen? The righteousness of God. But by saying for here, the author says not only do we see the righteousness of God when a repentant, softened in the heart sinner turns from their sin, but we also see the righteousness of God when? When a stiff-necked, rebellious child of wrath rebels and rejects the gospel. And therefore he he pours out his abandoning wrath and his future eschatological wrath on them. Whether we know 
whether one receives or rejects the gospel, listen here, when the, when the gospel is preached in line with the prophets and the apostles, both his salvation and God's judgments are both presented in a balanced format, right? And the conclusion for the audience listening is what? God is righteous. Let's go back to the garden. We have the creator and we have his creation. And what did God say? He said, if you eat of this tree, you will what? Surely die. Let me ask you, for Adam and Eve, was it a matter of of ignorance? Was it a matter of of not knowing? No, here's the deal. Just like the audience in Romans chapter 1 that Paul is portraying, Adam and Eve possessed the truth, but they what? They suppressed the truth. They held back the truth, and therefore they just like all sinners since, were without excuse. You see, in the garden, when Adam and Eve took of that fruit, they were without excuse. They were found guilty. Attempting to do what? Attempting to gain wisdom outside of the bounds of God's authority and His revelation. What what was the reality? They became fools. You see, in the garden, the the creature esteemed himself above who? The creator. In the garden, the the creature esteemed esteemed the serpent and his counsel above the creator. And in the garden, the creature, the mere mortal man, esteemed the sweet fruit of the tree and its benefits for them, mainly divine wisdom, above the creator. And what happened? They became fools their hearts were darkened in a moment and their lives were habitually stained from that point on with no reverence to no obedience to no honor for no glory to no thankfulness to the eternal powerful divine God who just 10 verses earlier had given them everything that they were and ever since then ever since the garden it has been a rinse and repeat cycle up into this very day since the fall, God has dealt with sinful, the sinful race of Adam one of two ways. Either justice, which if, if you're sitting here today, which is what every one of us deserves, or mercy and grace, which is not one of, what one of us deserves. Not one of us deserves. Since the fall, there has been no unfair verdicts. There's never been a reason for, for a mistrial. There's never been a, an inclination that there was going to be appeal, an appeal. Since the fall, there has never been eternal punishment dished out by God to someone good who was undeserving of his wrath. History is this, very simply as we move on to the text. History is this. It is a just and righteous God giving out retribution to what sinners have earned, or God acting rightly to save through what? Through his promised offspring that comes through Abraham's seed. It has been mercy for some of us. It has been grace. It has been undeserved compassion made available through the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world as a substitution and a propitiation. Exodus 34, 7 says that keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
Deuteronomy 32-39, he says, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. What's our conclusion this morning? Ezra 9-15, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. Thou art righteous. This is Paul's strategy revealed through the four. When he speaks of the wrath of God, he points us to the righteousness of God. Paul has a couple more strategies in this first point. You see, Paul wants his audience to understand that the good news, guess what, includes the bad news. To be more specific and in line with his example here for us, the good news actually begins with a good, firm foundation of the bad news. What's the bad news? Listen, for those who have yet to repent, for those who have yet to bow their knee to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the abandoning wrath abides on your head this very moment in your unbelief. Jonathan Edwards said these words, He said the bow of God's wrath is bent and straining. He said the arrow is set on the string and justice aims it directly at your heart. He says this angry God is not obligated to keep that arrow from becoming drunk with your blood at any moment. That's the bad news. But what's the good news in context? That Christ took ten thousands of those arrows on a hill called Calvary from his father for you. If only you'll repent. If only you'll turn from your sin, your self-centeredness. If only you'll put your faith, your trust, your belief in the finished work of our Savior on a Roman cross. What will be yours? Freedom, deliverance, rescue, mercy, peace, Justification won't be a word that I have to explain to you, beloved. Justification will be everything in your life. Everything. That's the, that's the good news. But here it is. In order to, to truly rejoice in the great remedy seen in Christ, we have to do what? We have to, we have to understand the ugly diagnosis of the disease or the dilemma. Douglas Moose said that, that Romans as a whole is, is the grandest exposition of the gospel. Martin Luther said it's the purest gospel. John Stott said it's the plainest presentation of the gospel. Therefore, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, everything up until this point is the introduction to this great exposition. And Romans chapter 1, verse 18, guess what? It's point number one, titled, The Bad News. Or subpoint, God's certain judgment of all of Adam's race who are all under the dominion of sin. Paul's strategy, brothers and sisters, is to paint the, the remedy as this great masterpiece in light of the black velvet backdrop of the dilemma. The first section of Romans, this not just chapter 1, not just Romans chapter 1 verse 18. One of Paul's strategies in this, this first verse that kicks off this first section is to do what? He is to take 
the unrighteous man or the unrighteous woman's legs out from under them no matter who they are. In Romans chapter 1, from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, who does he go to first? If you were to walk out your door in a Roman culture, 75% of the people you would come in contact with is this first group. It's known as the pagan, the Gentile. Paul describes them in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 29 through 32. He says they were filled with all unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. He says they are full of envy, murder, deceit, strife maliciousness they are gossips slanderers haters of God insolent haughty boastful inventors of evil and they got our kids too disobedient to parents foolish faithless heartless ruthless and although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them you know what we have become in America just like they were in Rome we are a cheering gallery of death cheering our neighbors on in their perpetual depravity all the while doing the same thing behind closed doors ourselves if not for the grace of God right Romans chapter 1 he takes the legs out from under the Gentile what about Romans chapter 2 the moralist the guy who sits back in the back of the congregation looking at that guy that, he's, that Paul's just described in, in the first chapter and he bases his justification on what? Praise God, I'm not that guy, right? You didn't have to tell Brock Kilburn six years ago before he ran headlong into Jesus Christ that I was an idolater pagan who was steeped in my depravity. But that guy sits back and all the while he, he, he heaps his judgment on this guy and his sins. And, and what does Paul say? He says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He says, we know. We know from the Old Testament scriptures, we know that those who practice such things and yet do them, yourself, do them themselves, they what? They deserve to die. God judges according to a right standard. What is God judged according to? The truth. The truth. He is a righteous judge. And here's the deal. All the while I judge my neighbor, I'm heaping that same standard on myself. Romans chapter 2 is not a proof text that we should not judge. Brothers and sisters, if you wake up in this God-forsaken culture, you have to make discerning judgments indwelt by the Holy Spirit every single day. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, but when you do judge somebody else, you have to understand if the Spirit of God will allow you that when you make that judgment, you're going to be held accountable according to the same standard. Pagan, his legs are gone. The moralist who thinks he's doing good based on the fact that he's not doing as bad as his neighbor, his legs are gone. In Romans chapter 3, who's left? The religious, the Jew, the Jew. Hey, Paul? The intellector speaks up. He says, is there any advantage? I mean, what should we say? Are we any better off? And Paul says, no, not at all. He says, listen, here at the end of this, whether you're pagan, whether you're a moralist, or whether you're religious, you've grown up in church, you know the lingo, Listen, here's the deal. On that day of final judgment, when you see the holy God as he is and you understand what he judges according to truth, here's going to be the reaction. You're going to take both hands and you're going to cup them over your mouth. Why? To keep from making excuses. You're going to know, just like that, that this God is real and that his judgment is real. This is Paul's 
strategy. It is to take out the legs of every man and woman listening to this letter. And lastly for us today, this is Paul's strategy. It is to give us, regarding the wrath of God, it is to give us a biblical example of what true evangelism should be. Sharing the gospel starts right here. God is holy and he is going to punish the evildoer. Not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know what it is? It is sentimental sloganism and each one of us should despise it. Listen, here's what we must do. We must go out into our communities. We must invite the community into our churches and we must preach to them first about their sin. We must preach to them first about God's wrath. We must preach to them as we preach about Christ. We must interlock it with the problem. We must provide proper context and leave them with Christ crucified and resurrected as the only remedy that will bring about relief. Brothers and sisters, I know it's easy to be conditioned by our milk toast culture and this so-called Southern Baptist life that we all once were exposed to. But here it is. If the gospel that you believe, if the gospel that, that, that fills you with joy, that propels you to Christian service, and that gospel that you then present to the community and the lost divorces and removes the wrath of God and the righteousness of God from the love of God, it is an incomplete, confused, and crippled gospel that is going to hinder you in your sanctification and hinder the listener as well what has it become in our culture brothers and sisters we know this I'm preaching to the choir this morning praise God just watching two of your services in the last two weeks I know that this is a healthy local body that knows what the gospel is but around us it has become the blind leading the blind such authors like Rob Bell Authors of, of books entitled Love Wins. Guys like Todd White who run around the community pulling guys' legs. And even in here in your community, and I won't name the name, but just doing a little bit of work on the internet looking for this, this love at all cost, imbalanced gospel. I found a church right down your road who is caught up in this man-centered one, two, three, four-step process to get integrated into this Christian life. Their, their main... Uh, appeal to the addicted community is Celebrate Recovery. You, may, you want me to tell you what Celebrate Recovery is? It is a secular program hidden behind a bad veneer of faith. That's all it is. But this is in your community right now and not here. There's, there's campuses just like it in the next 20 square miles. The American church, brothers and sisters, has become a man-centered, goofy, man-pleasing corporation that operates as a support group on wheels. All it is at this point is a personal motivational app and a self-help forum. Teachers are good at elevating very small amounts of, of happy scripture out of context as proof texts while ignoring all passages like the one before us today that refer to God's wrath, his anger, his judgment, and human sin. You know how many times God's wrath is found in the scriptures? Over 600 times in the Old and New Testament. And I said Old and New Testament. God is not a bipolar God. He was one way in the Old Testament and he's one way now. 
they ignore these passages. They ignore passages like Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God. Their major emphasis is always what, Brother Clark? It's always positivity. It's always unity. It's always acceptance and love from God and neighbor unconditionally, no matter what they do, at all times. Listen, for you and I to go out in the community and, and, and continue to preach this false gospel, listen, it's the last thing that most of our American neighbors and coworkers need to hear. The last thing that they need to hear is that God loves them. Why? Because they already think that God loves them. They are already presuming on his grace and his kindness and they are convinced in their rebellion and sin that he loves them. Why? Because that's all they've heard from these milquetoast preachers and so-called Christians. These teachers around them labor to push people towards living one's purpose now fueled by a cheap version of the Holy Spirit which is just emotionalism, sentimentalism, and humanism. They love their little G, and he loves them. And you know what his name is? Me. Me. They are pupils of death. They already believe God loves them because their cabinets are full of food, their refrigerator is full of drink, their account's full of money, the reports say healthy, and when they don't say healthy, guess what? They'll find somebody to speak it in their life in an instant. The vaccinations and vacations are endless, so if you and I go and tell them that God loves them, it's more reason for them to go on being bold in their sin. Ashley and I were in Nashville three or four weeks ago, and we were walking down the street, and there's First United Methodist Church, and they, fl they hang these big rainbow banners out of their windows, and it says, it, it lists all these people, homosexual, uh, transsexual, transgender, pansexual, everything that you can imagine. And it says in big letters, God loves you unconditionally. Brothers and sisters, if they die in their sin, guess what? God, God's love runs out in hell. The last thing that they need to hear, the last thing that the homosexual community needs to hear is that God loves them unconditionally. What about the coworker that I've worked with for five years? He got sober five or six years ago. And he plugged into one of these milk toast church and he's got a pastor who pats him on the back every couple of weeks and tells him he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Why? Because he's got one thing in his life, sobriety. Now praise God for sobriety. But here's the thing. He goes home to a woman who is not his wife and he lives in gross sexual, habitual sexual immorality without any repentance or conviction. And every single day that God who supposedly loves him, he smacks in the face every day or the guy the drunk that I've ministered to for the last two years who will call me every six weeks on a Tuesday night at 10:30 at night belligerent in his sin he has no power to step outside of his bondage and he'll beg me just do something fix it help me and it occurred to me that he had been churched right so six months ago I said here's the thing Chris the wrath of God abides on your head in your unbelief this very moment. I said, do you want to know your problem? You don't fear the Lord. And he sobered up just like that. Fear the Lord? Why would I fear him? He loves me. There's no evidence in this man's life that God loves him with the eternal grace that he loves you and I. And that's the last thing that he needs to hear. 
Brothers and sisters, let me leave you with this quote and this first point. Paul's strategy regarding the wrath of God. Richard Niebuhr said, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the casual observation of a Christ without a cross. Without a cross. Number one, we see the strategy. Paul presents by presenting us with the wrath of God, we see the righteousness of God. We see the legs taken out from all unrighteous men. And, and the four of the conjunction shows that this is the starting point for us for all true evangelism. Look to the text. Number two, we're going to see the source, the source and the bulk of our sermon. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The text says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. The wrath of God. Alan Carnes says it is the settled opposition of God's nature against evil. Wrath, that word here in the Greek is the word orge. We get the English word orgy. It literally speaks of a kindled anger. When we hear this word, it it speaks of a pot uh, of simmering holy disposition against sin. A.W. Pink says rightly, the wrath is the holiness of God being stirred into action against the sinner. This word orge is not, I thought it was interesting to note, it's not the most common form of the word wrath throughout the New Testament. The, the word that's used mostly for God's wrath is the word thumos. Thumos, most of the time it's used, speaks of that future eschatological wrath. But here, orge speaks of, of the wrath, the abandoning wrath of God that abides on the sinner in the, in, the, in the general activity of his sin. You have to understand these two words in relationship. When Paul says, for the wrath of God is being revealed, that orge, this is, it, it, it paints a picture of a pot on the stove, something that we're all familiar with. And, and as that heat and as that energy rises, what happens? What starts to take place? Bubbles start to form. Steam starts to rise. That, that's our word orge. That's what's taking place here. But eventually, those bubbles and that steam and that energy does what when it gets hot enough? It completely boils over and creates disaster. That is how those two words are, are related throughout the New Testament. Orge leads to thumos. Romans chapter 2, 5, just one chapter ahead, paints a perfect picture. But because of your, listen, hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath, orge, and what? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This orge points to God's future judgment. Here, this speaks of the, the complete The controlled, simmering anger now that will ultimately culminate in utter catastrophe for who? For the sinner. Now, look to the text. He says, for the wrath of God. Now, this is very important. This is known as a genitive of source. Basically, this of God shows ownership of the wrath. It, it, to better and it, it, it indicates to us that that we can bypass the word study in order to better understand this word wrath. We must first understand who God. I'm going to give you a real quick 
some, some new terminology for some of you maybe, just to kind of frame up the picture of what's going on here with God's wrath. Here's the first thing I want to say. Listen to me. Everybody awake? Wave. Wave at me. Regarding God's wrath, God is not like humans. He is not like you and I. Why? Because unlike me, God can see past the end of his own nose. He knows the the plans and the purposes for every single human activity before it takes place. Therefore, there's no surprise when evil is done and his wrath is what? It is revealed. He is not like us. But here's the question. Why when we, we speak of God's, especially his emotions, do we tend to put him in a human box? Well, here's why. Because throughout your Bible, if you're a Bible student, you'll agree with me. All throughout Scripture, what does the Scriptures do? It speaks of God using human terms. Let me give you a $5 word. This is known as anthropopathism. A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-P-A-T-H-I-S-M. Anthropopathism. This is literally when the Bible ascribes human emotion to describe God to us who are limited in our understanding. It basically acts as framework to let us know how God responds to his children and thus the children of Satan. Anthropopathism. All throughout scripture we see Romans chapter 9, God hates. Exodus chapter 20, God harbors jealousy. Genesis chapter 6, God changes his mind. Uh, He vents his anger. Jeremiah chapter 4, We see him even in the New Testament, grieved at times and what? He rejoices at times. We can't help at times in our carnality and our fallenness to fit God into a human box. But here's the thing. God is not like an unstable, unregenerate daddy. He's not like the high school baseball coach that I had 20 years ago. He is what? He is immutable. He is immutable. What does that mean? It means that he is unchanging. That his wrath, therefore, is unchanging. He is not up and down, pacing the floor, pulling petals off flowers. Does he love me? Does he love me not? But he and his emotions are fixed to his mind and his eternal purpose. Three weeks ago in Tennessee, we had a stray dog in our neighborhood. And I I learned a lot about my own emotions and affections regarding this dog. It's been an up and down relationship to say the least first couple weeks I loved the dog he was cute traipsing around my backyard I didn't have to feed him praise God and my wife even said hey Brock it's a cute dog and I stepped up as the husband and I said no we don't need another dog but what happened came outside he had ran under the back fence and pulled our chain link fence loose from the post guess what affection's gone immediately had a few days to process it My son took it upon himself to go fix the fence, processed it, gained my affections back, loved the dog again, or we were in tolerable standings. Got up to go to church two weeks ago, about 6.30 in the morning. Looked out, he had took a 30-gallon trash sack and ransacked it across my backyard. Guess what? Affections gone. Wrathful. Angry. Right? Here's the deal. God is not like me. Brothers and sisters, he's not like you in your anger, but he is immutable. But there's a word that is a subset of immutability. It's called the impassibility, not impossibility. I want you to, the impassibility 
of God. God is impassable. Let me give you a definition. It is the belief from Scripture that God's emotions don't change as he interacts in time with the created world, but his emotions are fixed in his eternal disposition. This will stretch you a little bit. I pray it does. The Bible student should be stretched. But the 1689 London Baptist Confession says that he is perfectly pure spirit, he is invisible, and has no body, parts, or in the modern English, changeable emotions. The old English literally says without passions. The Bible says all throughout that God's passions are unlike ours. Acts chapter 14, 15, Paul literally says our passions aren't like God's. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind or repent. 1 Samuel 15, 29, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change, change his mind for he is not a man who changes his mind. Hebrews 13, 8 says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Malachi 3, 6 says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Brothers and sisters, when we're, when we're speaking of God's wrath, here's what you must understand. His passions are not like ours. They, they don't, regarding his wrath and anger, they are controlled. They're not up and down. They're not flying off the handle in some knee-jerk reaction. There are no <laughs> mood swings with God, but his passions are fixed according to his disposition his eternal decrees, and the covenants that he has placed in before the foundation of the world. The covenants that were in place before the foundation of the world. Here it is as we end this. Listen, God is an immovable rock. And if you're lost here today, he is to be feared. But here it is. God is a movable rock. And if you're saved today, if you're one of his, he can be trusted he can be trusted. Look to the text. We're looking at the source. <clears throat> he says, for the wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, here's what you have to understand. God is the owner. <clears throat> Excuse me. God is the author. He is the source. He alone is the originator of this wrath. It is not Satan. It is not chance. It is not karma. It is not some guys have all the luck and some don't. But this is the wrath of an immutable, impassable, holy God. And it remains, it should remain, the most fearful things to fall into the hands of an angry God and for brothers and sisters for us it should remain the most worshipful things to understand that we've been delivered from the wrathful hands of God he says for the wrath of God is revealed is revealed it literally is present tense it should say is being revealed for our understanding God's wrath is being revealed God's anger right now is, is being uncovered that word revealed it's apocalypto it's, it, we get the English word apocalypse it means to uncover to pull the veil back God's wrath 
is, is literally being uncovered here in America, Alabama, and Tennessee as history continues to fall, unfold before our very eyes. It's like uh, the weather. I mean, you pull out your phone on the app, God's wrath right this moment. It, it, it would be like pulling out your radar, but the storm is already here. Ezekiel 13, 13 says, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury. And there shall be a flooding rain in my anger and great hailstorms of wrath to consume them. God's hatred, brothers and sisters, and anger is against sin, yes. But it's also against the sinner. It is not future tense. It is not what is to come. And it is not secret. But it is obvious and out in the open for all to see right now. And here it is. It's not a neutral. You can, you can try to package it how you want. It is not a neutral, nice, neatly packaged situation. No, the wrath of God is terrifying. It is awful. It is destructive. And it is being revealed against, look to the text, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. His wrath is set against all sin. It is opposed to all sin and at war with all sin and, yes, the sinner. I know we've all heard that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Now, God loves in his own divine way. There is such a thing as, as eternal love that we can not comprehend. But there are passages throughout Scripture that, that speak of God not only hates the sin, but he hates the sinner. Psalm 5.5, 5, to support this point, listen. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all wicked people. And you'll say, even some of us now, it's not what I see, Brock. When I go out into my neighborhood, it's not what I see. And, and my theology is, is more of a, Chicago and Lionel Richie and Jim, Jimmy Buffett. What's that theology, you ask? Saturday in the park, easy like Sunday morning, and come Monday it'll be all right. Is that your theology? No. It's not who God is. That is not who God is, and that is not what the Scriptures have revealed about him. Jeremiah 12.1. Jeremiah, he had the same problem. He looked to the sky and said, Why do the ways of the wicked prosper, Lord? And let me tell you this, their prosperity from an American point of view might look good, but their greatest blessings are their greatest curses. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge, and he is what? Angry with the wicked every day. Job 21:13, they spend their days in prosperity, and suddenly what happens? They go down to Sheol. Nahum 1-2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Listen, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps, keeps wrath on his enemies. And Hebrews 12-29, for our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. How, how is, his, is his wrath being revealed? Where do we see it? You're just like, if you're just like me, the Lord reveals so much through study. It's not natural disaster, primarily. It's not disease. It's not death. I heard Winston Churchill say this one time, not in the flesh. I mean, he's dead, but 
I read this quote. Winston Churchill said, if you want to make a point, don't try to be clever. He says, hit it like a pile driver. Does everybody know what a pile driver is? He said, hit it once. He said, come back to it, hit it again. And he said, come back to it a third time. And he said, hit it with a tremendous whack in a British accent. That's what he said. And that's exactly what Paul does regarding the wrath of God. It's not natural disaster. It's not disease. It's not death that we should be fearful of in this passage. But what is it? It's the rest of the chapter. It's God. Listen, you want to hear about God's wrath? It is God giving the sinner everything that he wants. It is him pulling back his restraining grace and says, you want it? Have at it. Listen, here it is. Listen for the, I'm going to read, a, I'm going to quote a passage to you. Listen for the threefold repetition, okay? Be a Bible student. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give you ears to hear. Romans chapter 121. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. For this reason, here it is, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What is it? What is it? Idolatry. If these Americans who are in idolatry, what does God do? He gives them over to the wrong sexual desires of their heart. It says he gives them over to the impure to the lust of, of their hearts to impurity. And what's the result to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves? What's the next step? He goes through it. He picks up in verse 25. Because they exchanged the glory of an immortal God for what? Look to the text. 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, verse 24 to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And what's the result? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. There's a digression taking place here. He gives them over to the lust of their hearts and maybe even a heterosexual male or female who says, I'll never go that far. I've never struggled with homosexuality. You see this, this culture completely ripped out from under them. Things that you said you'll never do when God gives the sinner over are, are realities, are soon realities. He goes on. After the second giving over, this is the wrath of God, the abandoning wrath of God. And the, he says, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their errors. See, here's the thing with homosexuality in our culture. It's not an indication that God's going to judge them. It is an indication that God is judging them right now. The act itself is evidence of God's abandoning, abiding wrath on their head. And lastly, verse 28, that, that third repetition. He says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Basically, what that means is they put God to the test according to their standard, and they failed him. And they said, you're not worthy to be in our thoughts anymore. What did he do? He gave them over to a failed or debased mind. Brothers and sisters, this is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. The abandoning wrath of God. 
So we've seen the strategy. We've seen the source. Number three, these last two points are, are shorter. Let's look at the sinner exposed. The sinner exposed. Look to the text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That word ungodliness, it literally means without worship. It literally means no reverence to God. It is a life where, where every thought and intention one has takes no consideration of God at all. Here in America, here in our communities, man makes his plans without thought of God anywhere around. They, they build their cities we grow our families, we take jobs over here, and we take jobs over there. We scheme and devise plans, and God is nowhere to be found in our hearts, our minds, and our consciences. And where the heart goes, guess what? So goes the actions. Look to the text. And unrighteousness. This speaks of, of no obedience to God. It speaks of activity that is literally set against God and veers away from his moral law and his righteous standard. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men speaks of the whole man, of all men and women under the dominion of sin inside and out. Unregenerate human beings only thinking and doing evil continually, following their father, Satan. By nature, they are, as we all were, children of wrath. And at this point, do, do you remember I opened and said that there's a, there's a little courtroom flavor here? At this point, there's a, the defense attorney steps up and says, Objection, Your Honor. Relevance. Basically, the, the defense attorney is saying that Paul's being a little too rough on the defendant. Who's the defendant? The pagan. The Gentile. And this defense attorney says, look, here's the deal. He's a pagan. Maybe he didn't grow, he didn't grow up in church, and maybe he came from a, a broken home. And I mean, what do you expect? He's in Rome, right? And, and, you know, after all, we're all human. And maybe, here it is, maybe he's got an excuse. So what does Paul do? He rephrases the question. At the end of verse 18, what does he say? He says, they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Paul rephrases the question. Paul's not attacking uh, the Gentile according to their sin. What he, but what he is going to attack them is uh, according to the amount of truth that they've been given. He says, so the defense attorney at this point tries to, pr tries to prove that, that this, this defendant, the, the Gentile, is not even competent to stand trial, right? And Paul says, well, let me rephrase the, the question. And here's what he says. He says, they suppress the truth in ungodliness or in unrighteousness. Listen to me. Here's the principle. And I want you to think about this. Nobody goes to hell, especially here the pagan, over their sin. They go to hell over what they willfully choose or choose not to do with the truth that God has given them. Do you understand that? Nobody goes to hell over their sin. They go to hell over what they choose to do or don't choose to do with the truth that God himself has given them. Spurgeon says of this term, suppression of the truth, he says they literally hold it back. 
They will not let the truth work up in their hearts. They will not allow it to operate in their minds, but they try to make it an excuse for their sin. Here's the problem today. Not only do these sinners make excuses for their sins, but the church has started to make excuses for them. It's a relationship that is never going to work out with any eternal value. God, the creator, the giver of life and all resource, is the author and he is the standard of truth. And he shows his anger against all men who don't worship and obey his truth. And it's back to where we started. It's not that we've came full circle since Genesis chapter 3, brothers and sisters. Nothing has changed since Genesis chapter 3. It's only gotten worse. It's only gotten worse. These pagans, they know the truth. But here's the deal. What do they do? They push it down. Have you ever, have you ever had a full trash can and it's been one of those lazy days, Dad? And you, what do you do? You try to you push it down to fit more trash in on top. This paints a picture of what they do. They stifle. They suppress the truth. They fill their lives with anything that will help blot out the reality and the thought that there is a God and that he is worthy to be worshipped and obeyed. But what is this truth? Verse 20 and 29, verse 19 and 20. This is the truth that they suppress. And I'll read these, these verses and then I'll close. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Basically, whatever this truth is, it's plain. That, that, that first comment, it, it, it creates some confusion. But it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. This speaks of, I'll just go ahead and say it, this speaks of the knowable things that are accessible to the public. There are knowable things about God that, that all uh, the public, the general public, all men and women are aware of, even sinful men and women. These things are evident to them. He says, because God, why, why are they evident? Look to the text. Because God has shown it to them. In this case, God is the one that's shown it to them so that you, you know that, that him revealing it to them is, is of quality, right? Because he's the one that did it. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Listen. Here it is. Let me summarize it. As one beholds and experiences creation, the lost in our communities, if you're lost here today, they find themselves as pupils in a classroom of God, an audience in a theater of God. God who can't, who can't physically be seen with the eye makes himself and his attributes known through the visible creation to who? To his creature. When we, when we behold the sun, the sky, the oceans, the trees, babies, bees, life, this created order, it's like flipping through a textbook of God. And here's the thing. The information is not enough to save, but it's enough to damn in this case. It's enough to damn. Through general, this is what we refer to as general revelation. Through general or natural revelation, Men are made aware of a great creator who is distinct from his creation and who is sovereign over its operation and who is worthy of honor, glory, and thankfulness. He's honor. 
He's, he's worthy of what? Of worship. Of worship. What do we know? What can they know? Here's, here's what they can know as I close. They can know that he's eternal, which means that he's everlasting. The creator came before the creation. That he's powerful. That he is the dynamic force. He is the force that brings about all things. He is the one who spoke that which did not exist into existence. And by beholding creation, they can see that he is divine in nature. Do they seem as clearly as we seem? His elect, those who have been born again, no. No, we know him as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they can know him as a sovereign creator who is over its, his creation's operation. But here's what they do as I close. Here's what we at all one, at one point in time did. We suppressed the truth. We suppressed the truth. They fight tooth and nail to push back every ounce of, of truth that they see in reality. They do it. Some of you sitting here today might still be doing it. You've, you've plugged in here. I don't know you. But here's the deal. What do we have? Does this mean that we're, we're to, to go out into the communities and, and participate in uh, apologetics over the creation? Absolutely not. Here's what it does mean. We take the gospel to everybody that we can and we share Jesus Christ and him crucified. Brothers and sisters, we came in town yesterday and just rode around looking around and let me ask you, raise your hand if I, if I cover you. How many of you know somebody down at Tri-Green Equipment? Go ahead and raise it and keep it up. Tri-Green Equipment. How many of you know somebody down at Milner's uh, Dairy Delight? How many of you have been in there in the last two weeks, even if you don't know somebody? Raise your hand and keep them up. What about the Farmer's Exchange? How many of you have been in there? All right. What about Arab Lumber and Supply? Now, let me ask you this question. In the last year, how many times have you engaged in sharing the gospel with one of those people that you know from one of those four places? Brothers and sisters, nobody's arrived. Here's the deal. This is what this passage does for, for the believer. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Of men. We're to be the most gospel-centered, gospel-proclaiming people we know. Amen? And, and every time the gospel's preached, whether they respond or they don't respond, guess what happens? Jesus Christ is glorified. He is glorified. Amen. Let's pray.